If you're <clears throat> joining us online, welcome. Glad to have you this morning. I know a few of you are sick and you may be picking up on this. And uh, There's a few others that watch, I know. Uh, so we'll keep, uh, keep doing these at least until I retire. I kind of got a kick out of the kids' podcast, one of them I was listening to a few weeks ago, and Michael said something about, uh, yeah, he, uh, he was sure that his mom was listening anyway, you know. Um, sometimes I feel like that's it. Well, I'm sure my dad's going to listen, you know, because he wants to know what's going on in Texas, but I'm not sure much past that. But at any rate, uh, if you're out there tuning in, welcome this morning. Matthew 1, 21, or 20 and 21, kind of want to start with the Christmas passage, but really John is where our study is, and that's where we're going to the fifth chapter, but it is all very, very connected. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, him being Joseph, in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will give birth to a son. And you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What does that mean? He will save his people from their sins. Well, sin, I guess, in its most boiled down um, definition would just simply be disobedience to God. But there, there's a whole lot more to it than really just that, isn't there? He will save them from their sins. If you go back to the Garden of Eden and you just kind of walk through that event, you've got man in a situation created in the image of God, in perfect fellowship with God, in a pretty plush situation, what we would call life, a life abundant. And in the midst of that, there wasn't a whole lot man had to do in that fellowship other than honor God, obey God. He was an image bearer of God in a great way that brought glory to God. But in an instant, he, Adam and Eve, decided that they were going to do things their own way. And, and when they did that, everything changed in their relationship with God. So that the next time he shows up in the garden, they're hiding from him. And all of the kind of blessing that was theirs before had been corrupted. There was a curse, so to speak. A curse really that was just the outcome of the breach of relationship that had taken place. We understand the law of the harvest. You reap something and you sow it. And it's almost that sowing and reaping. And I understand this pretty well because... You have relationships and I have relationships and our actions in those relationships have consequences, don't they? You can really mess up a relationship bad with just a couple of stupid minutes. Isn't that true? Well, there's something here that happened <clears throat> that messed up relationship. But even more than that, there was something that happened that marred the image of God. That was ours in being created in his image that stole or robbed God of the glory that was his or should have been his in that moment. So we're in a position now where what we desperately need 
is to somehow have something that's big enough to be able to bring back and give to us what was lost. Which, in if you think about it in terms of relationships that we live in, it's, it's an impossibility, isn't it? I mean, let me say it this way. Do you do things that cause damage that you just can't take back? And there's really nothing you can do to fix that damage, right? And so we've got a situation here between us and God where the damage has been done. And we've been cursed as mankind, and this world is under the weight of sin as mankind. And we're in a pickle. And if Adam and Eve hadn't have done what they did, well, we all would have. We've all walked that same path of disobedience and rebellion to God. And so what we're needing somehow is this way to overcome. Because he will save his people from their sins. What does that mean? This is our problem. This is where we're at. How can Jesus come in and do this? How can he save us from our sins? Well, it's appointed unto man wants to die. And after that, we're going to face judgment. Well, we're going to be in trouble at that judgment. Because we know who the judge is. And what you and I need is an advocate that's standing up for us, that has the ability to handle the accusations of the accuser and nullify those so that somehow or another we might be able to go free. And to go free in this case means that we could be restored again to a right relationship or at least a fellowship with this God that we lost fellowship with. Because all the good stuff that Adam and Eve had was theirs by virtue of the nature of that relationship and fellowship with God. And when that was destroyed, then everything got messed up. So if we could just restore that, then everything could be set right. We're going to need a different body because this one's going to die because of sin. And so... Jesus has paved a way for that. He's going to give us a resurrected body. He's the firstborn from the dead. And we're going to have a body like his. I believe that's it. That resurrected body that he walked around in. We're not going to have a glorified body like he did. I mean, when you look at Jesus, when he finally gets to heaven and the Father bestows upon him the glory that he had at the beginning, you read about it in Revelations. Well, that's a Jesus, isn't it? That's a picture. But he's going to give to us this immortal body. And then he's going to allow us, because he took the weight of our sins on Mount Calvary, to be able to walk off from all of that and walk into a new relationship with God the Father. Keep this in mind. Let's go to John, the fifth chapter, and let's read this passage of Scripture. 
Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem from the feast of the Jews, for the feast of the Jews. And now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And there was a great number of disabled people who used to lie there, the blind, uh, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. And when Jesus saw him laying there and learned that he had been in that condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? The story around the pool of Bethesda is that the angels would stir the water, and when the angels stirred the water, the first one in would be healed. Um, I'm not sure what I believe about that. <laughs> But I do know that angels are messengers from the Heavenly Father, and if they wanted to bring a word of healing and they brought a word of healing, it would come from the word on high and it would be a true word. 38 years. Some of you aren't 38 years old. I think this man was not born this way, and so I think the predicament and the situation he's in for... 38 years speaks to us of a longer lifestyle or a longer lifespan than what we're seeing here. And I'll make this more apparent in a minute, but I think this guy might have been my age. At a bare minimum, I think he's late 50s, maybe early 60s. Now that gives you a different perspective on what's happening too. 38 years, you should be in retirement. And what are you doing? You're still waiting for the water to be stirred. Some people make a case for the 38 being something that was connected to the children of Israel and their wandering in the wilderness. I don't really see that. I think it's just, I think it just speaks to the longevity of this man's suffering, which I think is going to be really important to our understanding of sin in a minute. But even if you do connect it with the children of Israel and they're wondering and you want to go that way and pick up those couple of verses back there in the Old Testament, remember that the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness because of what? Their rebellion, their sin, their unwillingness to follow God. So the parallel still works if you want to do that. Well, when Jesus saw him laying there and he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, see, Jesus takes note of the longevity of his condition. He says to him, do you want to get well? In other translations, it says, do you want to be made whole? <clears throat> I didn't go back to the American standard and the King James and the Greek to really see if that was what was being said here as opposed to do you want to get well because I wasn't trying to build theology at this point. But there is a difference, isn't there? A difference in just being made well, being healed, and being made whole, is there not? 
And what we know that this man got was a healing, whether or not he got, whether he received that being made whole again. Uh, we don't get that. The end of the story is going to leave you wondering about that. But for sure, he got the healing that Jesus asked him about. The Bible talks about our souls and our bodies working together so that our body might prosper health-wise as our soul prospers spiritually. A lot of the health that we do not have is because our souls and our spirit are not right with the Heavenly Father sometimes. Would you agree with that? Doctors will tell you that stress and anxiety and depression and all that kind of stuff causes health problems in your life. What can possibly cause you more stress and anxiety than to not be right with your Heavenly Father? Even if you ignore it and deny it, it's still going to be a cause of stress. Because when you take that path, your path is going to be one of pushing back hard against the things of God, of anger and bitterness. And those are good health producers. So you look at this and, and Jesus is maybe asking more than what's here in the NIV. Asking about the whole of his person wanting to get well. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in there, somebody else gets down there ahead of me. You know, I've been accused before of just telling people to grow up and man up, you know. Um, okay, let me tell you that again. Grow up and man up. What did this guy do? He's got Jesus standing in front of him, offering him this opportunity. And what does he do? He whines about it. We can't get in the water. Somebody else gets there first. We do that, don't we? We got the Lord of glory standing there in front of us, opening a door saying, come unto me. Let me... Let me mature you up in the things of Christ Jesus and give you life eternal and life abundant. And we sit in our pitiful situation and whine when the words of life and hope are standing right in front of us. Jesus doesn't address the whining. I love that. He says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And when Jesus says it, it's happening. Remember, John wrote these things, he said, trying to get us to see who Jesus was, this Messiah that he is, the Son of God that he is, so that we might put our faith and belief in him, and then in doing that, we might have life, zoena onion, which is not just something out there, it's something right now. It starts now. And this is what he wanted us to have. But to have it, we had to see and glimpse and grab and believe and put our faith in this Messiah. Is he presenting something really, really significant here? I think so. At that point when Jesus spoke the words, it says that once the man was cured. Now, if you, the next phrase says, and he picked up his mat and he walked. 
Was that an act of faith? Well, maybe, but I think it was more an act of already knowing that God had done a work in his life. You, you young people won't get this, but when you get to be my age, you'll understand perfectly. If Jesus said to me, you're healed, and at once I was cured, I would know it. Laying down, sitting up, drinking my coffee, I would know it. Why? Well, first off, I'd probably be able to take a deep breath and actually smell the coffee, you know? I would probably not have this kitsch in my get-along all of a sudden, right? It would be gone. Do I need to go on? And I'm in pretty good shape. This man was not in good shape. He was in a mess. I think he knew something had taken place in his body. Don't you? Listen, if somebody said to me that I was cured and I just did that, I would know whether or not it was real. Because I feel the arthritis in the places that I have arthritis, right? So I think he knew in that moment that he'd been cured. Now what do you do? Jesus can do what he said he could do. In fact, he has done it on your behalf. What are you going to do? Are you going to walk into that? Are you going to listen to that? Are you going to put faith and trust in that? Are you going to move on what he's done? Or are you going to lay there? Well, he picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the men who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry that mat around. But he replied, man who, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk. Okay, so you're not to blame. Who's this guy, insurrectionist, going around pe telling people to break the Sabbath laws? And he said, what? I, he said, I don't know who the fellow was. Because it says Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. And he, he didn't know. Well, later, Jesus found this fellow in the temple. And he said, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. That to me is a very intriguing passage of scripture. And I just trusted the commentaries on this. I didn't do all the research to be sure this is absolutely accurate. But according to those commentaries, this and only one other time in scripture is there a healing that Jesus does and attaches that somehow to being rooted in sin in that individual's life. The other one's Jesus just goes in and heals. So there's something here going on that I'm particularly curious and interested about. And so I go to the Mark 5 passage and I look there at that other one and I see in that passage they're dropping a man through the roof to Jesus to be healed. And he has the witness of a bunch of his enemies there 
And his speaking to address the man's sins in that process that heals that man is a much more comprehensive theological statement about the consequences of sin in this world and the physical state of mankind. It is, it, it is it's just, to me, totally different. It's different in this sense. This one is very personalized. This one, he says, you specifically are well again. Now, what are you going to do? Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So the implication is that it's sin in this man's life that had put him in this condition. Are there sins in our lives that can put us in some pretty bleak conditions physically? Sure, we see it all the time with abuses of all kinds of drugs, alcohol, other things. And the list doesn't stop there. And so the question that I had to ask myself when I first came to this, Jesus said to stop sinning, right? Look, he says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Is it possible that whatever it is that had trapped him and put him in that condition 38 years later is still going on in his life? That somehow he hasn't connected the dots to know that the changes that needed to be made with repentance and faith and following the Lord were the reason for what's going on in his life. We do that all the time. One of the most uh, amazing little things that I discovered years and years ago was that the dots don't connect the way I think they would. And if you really want to get an idea about how the dots connect, look at Proverbs. I'll give you one example. It talks about a man who's not faithful to his wife. And it says that all of the wealth of his household will go to another man's house. Would you ever think that the fact that you might be having financial troubles and losing all your wealth and never able to get ahead had something to do with an immoral lifestyle on the other side? Would you ever have connected those dots? See, sometimes we don't connect the dots. And maybe this guy had not put it together. But it's very likely, and in fact, I think probable, that he was still holding on to this thing 38 years later. That's why I think he was an old guy. Why? Well, because most of us lose our brain when we're in our teens or early 20s, right? I mean, if you go back on your life and say, boy, I wish I could redo this. I bet you odds are it was sometime between 14 and 25. Right? So I'm just guessing he got there. And somewhere in that process, he stepped over a line and whatever happened, there was something inside of him he never got rid of. So I think he was about my age. Wow. What a sad testimony to be my age and find yourself still tripped up by the stuff that entangled you as a teenager. We never do that. We wouldn't hold on to any of those rebellions, those bitterness, those angers, those lusts, those greeds, those prejudices, those uh, 
authorities that we can't stand. We wouldn't, we wouldn't dare do any of that. Jesus is giving this guy an opportunity to connect the dots and to make a change so that something worse doesn't happen to him. Having experienced this where he did with Jesus, having Jesus come along and help him connect the dots, now he is in a position to be in a worse position if he continues on. Isn't that true? Doesn't it seem to get worse when you know you're on the path of destruction and you don't care and just keep going? So because of this, the Jews, because he was doing this stuff on the Sabbath, they persecuted him. And I want to read this next verse, not because it deals with the sermon topic today, but because it deals with what John is trying to say to us about Jesus. And Jesus said to them, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, the Jews were figuring it out. They tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking their little Sabbath laws, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. I think this is an important passage in John's presentation of our Messiah, don't you? Let's go back for a minute and let's try to connect some dots. Because I think our world has a lot of trouble doing that today. Sin is disobedience to God. It is opposite of His holiness. It is opposite of what is His nature and His character. And it's God's nature and God's character that become the standard by which right and wrong are set. And we look for a standard in our own selves. We look for a standard in the world. We look for a standard from the government. We look for a standard wherever. We've got to go back to this centering around the nature and character of God. And then we have to keep in our mind this idea that we are created in the image of God. And in the garden, we brought incredible glory to God as the crowning part of his creation. That's it. In the end, male and female created in his image. Wow, in this garden. So let's let God's nature for a minute just speak to us. God is love, right? So would it be safe to say that anything that is done that is not of love would be sin? If it's done because of selfishness? Using others? If it's not an act of self-sacrifice for the good of the individual love? then it's not an act of love, and it's sin. And when you begin to think in those terms, the things that are laid out in Scripture don't look so much like a set of rules of right and wrong, but they look like me being an image bearer of God's nature and character in such a way that I bring glory to Him.
We do acts of goodness. We do acts that are would look by the world's standard to be righteous. But if they're not done in obedience to the Lord, then again, we have to be very careful that those things that we're doing are not self-centered, self-motivated, and end up being sin again. You see, what made what Jesus did so powerful in reaching down to us with love was that it was done in obedience to the Heavenly Father. See, I don't think Jesus healed anybody that God didn't approve of. I don't think he, I don't think he gave a, he did, he did nothing here that wasn't in step with what the Father's will was for him in this world. In complete totality and perfection. And so when he came to the cross, we look at it, and it is what we needed more than anything else. Somebody to be the one who would save us from our sin. That's what we needed. And in obedience to God, he was able to meet that need. Now, that is so unlike us. We run around meeting needs that other people tell us they have when they may or may not really have a need. And we become enablers to them and sinners for ourselves. I'm not saying that we don't love our neighbor as we love ourselves, but I'm saying that what we do in ministering to the world needs to be done because of our love relationship with God and in obedience to Him. And then what we're doing, we know, is really love. Otherwise, we can get in the way of what God is trying to do in people's lives. So sin is just deciding we'll do it our own way, even if it's a good thing. And in my mind, that's what the Bible calls self-righteousness. It's not a righteousness that comes from Him because I've followed Him and His Spirit in my life. It's a righteousness that comes because the world looks at me and says, well, that's the right thing to do, so He's doing it. He must be really cool. And that can get really misguided and warped. So there's a heart in all of this that is significant too. And that heart has to be one in love with the Father and that heart has to be one that's reaching out in love to the world. And only then can it do this accurately. So let me just take you to a few passages of Scripture that I think are powerful here. He says in Ephesians 5, To be imitators of God, therefore, is dearly loved children. You getting it? As what? Dearly loved children. And live a life of love. How? Just as Christ loved us. We've already talked about that. And how he gave himself up for us. Now look at this. As a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He met the need in obedience to God and it was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, bringing glory to God. You connecting the dots? But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. These are improper for God's holy people. Holy people. People, God's character, 
holy, his nature, holy. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place. But rather what? Thanksgiving, gratitude. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, for such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or and of God. So let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of such things, God's wrath comes upon those who are disobedient. There's that definition again. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. The fruit of the light consists in goodness and righteousness and truth. Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Do we need a Savior? Galatians 5.19 These are the acts of the sinful nature. Remember we talked about the nature and character of God. His Spirit, that nature... The new nature he puts inside of us. This is what's completely opposite of that. This is the sinfulness that gives us our trouble. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. And debauchery is just an excessive indulgence in pleasure. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice how not all of those are just external actions, but they're attitudes of the heart there with hatred and jealousy and selfishness. And you get it. He will save his people from their sins. Do you need him? 1 Corinthians 6 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, or male prostitutes, or homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what you were. And now you've been washed and you've been sanctified and you're justified by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What did he say? He will save his people from their sins. And he's doing it. Do you need him? Matthew 5.21 says, You have heard that it was said to a people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. He will save his people from their sins. 
You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It has been said that anyone who divorces his wife and gives her a certificate, he divorces his wife, must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Name him Jesus. He's going to come and save his people from their sin. Whew. Do you need him? Psalms 107, 17. Some become fools through their rebellious ways and they suffer afflictions because of their iniquities. Do you need a Savior who can save His people from their sins? This man's sinfulness had created a need that only Jesus could handle. When he came face to face with the power of Jesus to overcome his sinfulness and heal his infirmity, we saw that he whined in confusion. But when the Lord spoke the words of healing into his life and he felt that and knew that, he picked up his mat and walked. The challenge of this encounter for him in that second dealing with our Lord would now be whether he would leave his life of sin and persevere in a path that would produce life. Change of lifestyle. Repent. We don't know how the story ends. He ran off to tell the Jews how Jesus was. That doesn't look very promising. We talk a lot about in these times how Jesus is calling his people to repentance. And that if there's any hope for America at all, it's going to be in his children coming back to him with our whole hearts. And she shall give birth to a son. And you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Lord, I thank you. What can we do but throw our hands up in praise and fall face down before you and just say thank you that you have saved us from our sins. And in you and on your word and in your work, we have staked everything and believe it to be true and you to be true to the nature and character of God. 
kind of feel a call to repent here, Lord. And maybe some are feeling a call to come to you for the first time and be one of yours. Let you save them from their sins. I pray, Lord, that we would all make the step that we need to make to walk into your graces with repentance and faith that we might celebrate Christmas for what it really is this year. A father who sent the son to be the savior of the world because there is still a people who need to be saved from their sins. Amen.